The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 197 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have got such an amazing conversation for you. Uh, My guest, Portia Lauder, has such an incredible life story from some very difficult times uh, in her younger years and uh, time eventually served in prison. Portia's story was so inspiring. I loved meeting Portia. I was so grateful I got to have her over into my home and we were able to record in person. And this is just one of my favorite, favorite interviews we've ever done. You will love Portia's story. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, Freedom. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast and here in the Latter-day Lives studio, uh, my guest has such an incredible life story and I was so excited to hear it that I reached out and said, will you please come on the show? And she was good enough to do so. Portia Lauder, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's good to be here. I am so thrilled to have you on. Now, I first saw you uh, with our friends at High Five Live, which I've had the blessing to do a few times myself. Yeah. And your story, I don't know the details, so I get to learn along with the audience, but I know a couple of the highlights. <laughs> you got a story to tell here, and I'm super excited for our audience to hear it. But first of all, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Okay. Well, I am from Utah. I grew up in a small town um, in Richfield, southern Utah. I know Richfield. Yeah. So for our listeners, we have listeners all around the world. Uh, Richfield is a smaller small town, town. Yeah. kind of southeastern Utah, would you call it? Yeah, yeah, small, small town. I would say when I was there, probably 7,000, yeah. 10,000 people. But there's a lot of smaller uh, communities on the outskirts of Richfield. And we actually did live on a community on the outskirts. Um, my par- I'm the oldest of seven children, mm. so... My parents were pretty non-conformant even back then. Like, were they members of the church? They were members of the church. My mom was big time into healthy food, mm. and she didn't believe in immunizations or structure. Really, I would say anti-establishment. Yeah. So, um, the free cool, spirits. Free spirits. The cool okay. thing about that is that we had this really creative. Um, we played outside, we built huts, we were just kind of allowed to create. Um, the downside to that was that there was no structure. Okay. And that was challenging for me. I kind of took over as the structure person. And oh, okay. So it was just, I think the other thing that was challenging for me was by the time I was 12 or 13, I just really started rebelling. I mm. didn't like school. I didn't like anyone telling me what to do. I wasn't used to it. And um, my first challenge was relationships. I just got okay. involved with boys at a young age. And gotcha. That Sometimes, of- you know, and, and again, I'm certainly not any kind of psychologist or anything, but a couple things that you touched on. One is that a lot of times when, when parents aren't 
playing more of a traditional parental role. The oldest kind of takes on the role of mother. Mm -hmm. Did you find yourself mothering your siblings? Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) And then another thing that happens as a next step is, well, if I'm a mother, I'm going to find a father. And so you go out finding a relationship. Yeah. And you kind of moved into that. So did you start dating pretty young? Yeah. 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 12, 13, and I was dating older boys and Mm. yeah. Pregnant okay. when I was 17, so. Okay. So th- during your high school years, before you got pregnant, mm-hmm. what, what were you into? What were your hobbies? Well, I liked, um, I was, we jumped on the trampoline a lot. So I was pretty good at gymnastics. That oh, was our thing. <laughs> so I was a cheerleader. Um, I, I should say that I love to learn, but I really struggled with the structure of school. And so I'm a reader. I've, you know, I just read, 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 mm. but, um, but I dropped out of school. I didn't yeah. like the structure of it. In fact, my all my brothers and sisters at a young age, my mom took him out of school and just said, you know, you can stay home if you want or do what you want to learn. Was there a program or homeschool or anything? Or it was just, no, you're done with school? Um, there, <laughs> A little bit of both. Oh, wow. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then how old were you when you dropped out? Um, the first time I was, well, I didn't. I didn't want to leave school when my siblings did, which was in elementary school, so I stayed. Mm. And then by middle school was when I was really involved with relationships, so that became a problem. And then in high school, I would say 16. I dropped out at 16. I went back. I actually had the principal reach out to me and say, look, you are a strong leader here at the school. We want to help you. We want you to graduate. We want Uh. you to be a positive example. So I went back for a few months, and then I found out I was pregnant, and I dropped out for good. So. so when you're dating all these older boys, mm-hmm. your parents on the one hand are free spirits, on the other hand, <laughs> members of the church, which right. can be in a little bit of conflict. Yeah. What type of counsel and and uh, structure did you get on that end, or were you just left to your own devices? Well, I was. Um, I had a very strong personality, and I had also been running things, if you want to call it that, in the home, you know, and so, <laughs> so my dad, who was more structured, but wasn't, you know, he worked all day, um, really tried. I mean, he would set boundaries, and then mm. I would just do what I wanted anyway. And then yeah. he would, I mean, he really tried. And so I quit going to church when I was probably 12 or 13, um, and then just really struggled. Yeah. You know, I started drinking, I got involved in these relationships, and mm. I just went um, went down a pretty rough road. Yeah. So. How much were you drinking, and then also were you doing anything harder than drinking at that age? I didn't use drugs in okay. high school. Um, I would say on the weekends, you know, yeah. it was, I, alcohol's never been my big addiction. Mm. Um, I, I call it partying, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and then after I kind of, after some more difficult life experiences, I ended up you know, yeah. addicted to prescription drugs. And then suddenly you find yourself pregnant at age 17. Yeah. What was that like to to get that news, to know at 17 years old you're you're pregnant? You know, I've had time to look back at my life and think about that. And honestly, I don't think I had any help for myself. I didn't really mm. know my worth. Um, that's one of my, as looking at my mother, I have a lot of compassion for her because I don't think she knew who she was. She didn't know how amazing she was. I mean, she's amazing, but she just didn't know. And I, so that's become an important thing for me in my life to be firm in what I, in knowing my worth, because I think that I can't give that to my children unless I know who I am. Oh, that's beautiful. And so I, um, 
at that point in time, I just, when I found out I was pregnant, you know, my mom had seven children. So I was the oldest. I just wanted to have kids. Mm. I mean, I just didn't see myself going to college. Like education was too hard for me. And I lived in a little town. I never, I didn't see myself leaving it, but it didn't work out like that. So the modeling, <laughs> I mean, the modeling was there. Hey, yeah. have seven kids and live in a small town. Right. Why not get a jump start on it? <laughs> right. So did you think through options, like did did adoption, abortion, uh, did, did any other options come to mind or were you just, hey, time to become a mother? Time to become a mother. I didn't, um, I didn't think of adoption yet. I was really not mature enough to recognize okay. the value, um, to recognize that this child deserved more than what I could give it. Mm. I just wasn't at that point. I became so later. Um, and abortion was, has never been something that I considered. And I'm grateful right. for that because yeah, I've met people that have gone through it. And it's painful for them and yeah. obviously the child and all of that. So, How did your parents respond when you told them? Um, my dad was really hurt and upset. He didn't really talk to me for a little while. <laughs> and my mother just said, you know you're having a baby. It's exciting. We're having a baby. You know? yeah. I mean, looking back, I'm like, I think I would die if my daughter was pregnant at my age, you know, but she, I don't know that she saw it that way. Well, and I think especially this was, you know, in the, I don't know, 80s, 80s. Mm -hmm. This was in the 80s yeah. in Richfield, Utah. Right. You know, this was not going on in LA. <laughs> right. You know, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of stigma and judgment that I hope we're doing a better job now. Yeah. But in the 80s in Richfield, that's a that's a tricky thing, you know. Yeah. A lot of people know a lot of people in Richfield. Yeah. So. Everyone knows everyone. I uh, Yeah, I wish I I mean just looking back, I just have compassion for myself. I just think, gosh, good. you just didn't know who you were. Yeah. How sad for you, you know. And was the father still involved in your life? Um, yes, he okay. was. I mean, he yeah. It didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah. So. Shockingly, 17-year-old love did not last. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> we never ever hear that. That is such an outlier. Okay, so so now you end up giving birth. Yes. Um, so it didn't necessarily get much easier for me um, right away. I had the child, and I moved into a low-income apartment, and mm. as a single mother, started babysitting children that you know from the other mothers there that were working. I didn't want to leave my child. I mean, I wanted to be with him. Was um, living back at home ever an option or, hey, you've got a baby, you're out? No, my parents would have let me live there. I've been back and forth. I was. Okay. Um, it was but, just chaotic and I wanted, you know. Yeah, you just yeah. decided you want your own I'm place. Just done, yeah. And I think because I was the oldest, it was like, I'm going to go figure this out, you know. Yeah. That's a very oldest child mentality. <laughs> right. I like it. I'm just going to go do it. That's great. Well, kind of. I'm, I ended up... Um, after that relationship didn't work, I got involved with someone that was older than me and mm. had another child. So um, that happened um, by the time I was 21. I had two children. I was a single mother. So. Was there, with the second child, was there aspiration that maybe there would be a relationship there, a, a marriage, a family? We were married. You were married. Yeah, okay. he was 10 years older than I was. Um, mm. And How old were you when you were married? Um. I guess maybe 19, you know, right in yeah. that range. And it just didn't work. You know, there were problems yeah. again. And I mean, I married him, I think, a month or two after I met him, you know, just kind of someone yeah. to solve my problems. Yeah, there's someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he likes my son. And and um, what really 
I don't know if it saved me, but I think that it made a difference. My dad got transferred up to Salt Lake, mm. got a job, and my mom and the kids went with him. And I went to visit him, and I didn't know I was pregnant at that point in time, but I knew I was going to leave that town. I knew I was leaving Richfield, and I was coming up here. My okay. uncle offered me a job, and I told my husband at the time, and he said, yeah, I'll never leave. And we weren't doing great anyway, so I came to Salt Lake and found out I was pregnant and let him know. And it was, well, I'm not interested. So, oh um, my gosh, that so was tough. Yeah. My heart is breaking for young Portia. <laughs> I mean, this is so right. much. It was a lot. You leave and then find out you're right. pregnant. Yeah. And then to get the, sorry, yeah. I'm just not, yeah, it's not, gonna not about this. <laughs> my gosh. So here you find yourself in a new Big city. I mean, yeah. You were in one of the suburbs of Salt Lake. Yeah, we were in Sandy at the time. Yeah, so you're in you're in Sandy, and you've got a child. You're pregnant. You're single. You're young. You're uneducated, right? By the world standards. Oh at yeah, least. yeah. Overwhelming. The odds were so stacked against you. Yeah. I mean, that's really rough. So, what did you do? Um, I got a job. That was probably the first time that I felt some hope and a little bit of confidence in myself. I was mm. pretty good as a photographer working in a studio in a mall with oh, wow. with children. And I, I worked through my whole pregnancy. I remember um, that pregnancy with my daughter being really, it was very sad. You know, I was just sad that I was not married, that I wasn't going to be able to bring, mm. give these kids more than they deserved. And I had her, they made me a manager, which was nice. And my mom said, let me help take care of the kids. And I went right back to work. So things were going well. But again, for me, um, relationships were a problem. So I got involved in another relationship Mm. and um, I got pregnant again. So this time, you would think I would have learned that there's what causes it. (laughs) But I'm still not active in the church. I still, you know, this time... I was terrified. This time, I got on my knees for the first time in a long time, yeah. and I asked God to help me know what to do. In fact, my my coworkers were saying, "Well, you should have an abortion," and I that shocked me because I couldn't even imagine the thought of that. It just of I had two children. I I was like, "Well, that's." And when I prayed, I felt this total warmth and comfort come over. Oh, wow, me. beautiful! Yeah, and I knew that this child wasn't mine to keep. I knew mm. that he had parents that I needed to find. And it was the first real spiritual experience, like the first real where I, I couldn't deny that God was there, even at my yeah. lowest, you know? So I did the work and I found this amazing family and the whole uh, pregnancy was great. They were there with me. They met my children. They were so supportive. They were, my mom couldn't come. Like my mom said, I'll raise the child. You know, it's just too painful for her to see me go through that. Yeah. So I, they were there with me when I had oh, him. Awesome. It was really special. Um, but I felt, after I had him, I felt this emptiness come into my life. Mm. Didn't get therapy or anything. And I started using prescription drugs. And mm. um, it seemed like that was the answer. And it wasn't. Things just was that worse. a slippery slope from using them correctly? Yes. Into it? Yeah. I had them in my cupboard for a long time and never used them. Th- well, I, sh- I don't know if it was a slippery slope. I just remember feeling so low. Um, again, I couldn't, st- <laughs> I would date people. And once my son just asked me, he goes, do I ever get to have a dad that I get to keep? Mm. And oh, yeah, that, that oh. was, I, 
I oh just started gosh. to sob. And that was the night that I took a pain pill, not for a headache, and yeah. it just seemed to make it better. And I really was off to the races from that point on. It was just so much, you know. How did you deal with managing being a mother, working a full-time job, and being an addict? Bad. <laughs> okay, maybe I just asked the dumbest question. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that anybody manages it well, but uh, well, let me let me phrase it a little better. Like I told you at the beginning, I'm not very good at this. What did you do? Like, how did you juggle this schedule? Because I mean, you can't be yeah. super high taking pictures of. No, it didn't kids. last very long. I I um, I ended up, you know, I I am a pretty dependable person when I'm sober and living my best life, yeah. you know, but yeah. I wasn't. And so I started calling in sick and this and that. And pretty soon I just said, I need to take some time off and, mm. and quit. So to speak. Yeah. But I'll come back when I'm doing better. And it just didn't work. And I, I reached a low, you know, it took some time, but I reached a low and I'm so grateful for that. Mm. It was one of the more painful experiences. Um, again, I came home late one night and my mom was sitting at the window with my son who was nine. So, um, and he was he was sobbing, and he said, she said, he's been waiting for you. She said, so if these kids aren't enough for you, then I don't know what is. And it was the, like, my mom always said I could do anything, and I kept saying, I don't know why you think that. I'm like, such a failure. <laughs> you know, I just felt like I kept falling. But she just looked at me like she, was, she had given up on me. She's just like, if this isn't enough for you, then nothing will be. And I picked my son up, and I walked downstairs, and I laid on the floor, and I sobbed. I just curled up in a ball. And I said, I begged God, please, I don't care if I'm ever happy again. Just help me never hurt the people I love like this ever again, whatever it takes. And I walked over to the bishop's house the next day, and I was totally inactive. I'd never even met him. I just found out where he lived. said, help me, you know? That bishop... I wonder how many times he has retold that story, because that does not happen too often. Right. That man um, changed my life in so many ways. Like, mm. he, he was able to look at me and say, you really need help? Like, I don't know if nowadays he'd probably get kicked out for this, but he's like, <laughs> you, he's like you're very selfish. You're very, I mean, he pointed some good truths. Man. He good. was a good man. He needed to tell me the truth. That's wonderful. Yeah, he did. That's he said, good. These, you know, in fact, when I tried to tell him that all my problems were everybody else's, he's, he just kind of listened and that's, he's like, <laughs> good luck, you know? And one yeah. day I figured it out and I said, you know, I know why I did all these things. I chose to, it was yeah. my choice. And mm. he said, now there's hope. Now we can get somewhere, what you know? What a process, though. Yeah. <laughs> Portia, that's amazing. All right, so you ended up, how hard was it to get clean? Um, I thought it would be the hardest thing I would ever have to do. It wasn't. I've done harder. But mm. that at that point in time, it was extremely hard. Um, I was very insecure. He promised me, said, if you go to these, they just started the addiction program, the ARP awesome. program. Awesome. What an awesome yeah. program. So cool. And I was one of the beginners before they even have the manual now, you know, and I, yeah. there were like three of us in the room. And um, so he invited me to go there and he, t he promised me, if you pray and you read your scriptures and you go to these meetings, I promise you with priesthood power and authority that your whole life will change. And mm. I needed the whole life change, <laughs> you know, yeah. I needed that. And so I just, I held on to that and I was, um, I did those things. As I said, I would. I read my scriptures every day. I promise you, every word I read sounded like French, and it made me feel like I was just going to go to hell. That's how I felt, you know? Just It was painful. And it took a while. I walked away from 
um, relationships, the people that I knew, all of that. And I was very determined. And it was because of the pain that I had caused my children. I yeah. just couldn't do it anymore, you know? So What a turnaround. I mean, I'm sure it was just shocking to look in the mirror and go, okay, here I am a clean, it was amazing. sober, daughter of God, active Latter-day Saint of worth and all these things. Well, I met a great guy, went to the temple. Like, miracles happen when you do these things. How did you, you know? meet your husband? Well, I actually met him the first time, nine months pregnant with a child that I gave up for adoption. Oh, my god! Yeah, so this guy's kind of amazing, right? And I kind of... Oh, your husband is the greatest man. He's I've the ever. greatest man that ever lived. You, you, no, you but realize. I mean... I, He's anyway, he could see my potential, but he was concerned that I might not ever realize it. You know, he's like, I think you're great, but I just, and he was scared to death. He told me, he's like, I'm scared to death. But one thing about Chad, and I, I love this so much about him. He loves me and believes in me. Like his, Mm. his love for me has transformed my life. Like he sees so much more in me than I see in myself. And it, and I've risen to that, you know, it's really special. So that is beautiful. So now did Chad have other children? No, he just graduated college. No kids. No graduate college. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And suddenly it's, I've got a wife and two kids. Crazy. And it was a big transition. How old were your kids at that time? um, Nine and five, I think, nine and five. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, we talk about it now and our kids, our youngest is 14. And we're like, we're finally living the dating life, <laughs> you know, because I mean, <laughs> yeah. and he was, oh, I, I know, yeah, you I know, get it. I right. Get it. And he says, you know, when I tell him that the kids love him and that I love him, he's like, well, I was so lucky to have you all. I mean, he's just a great guy. <laughs> All right, he's going to be translated any moment. (laughs) One day you're going to walk in and poof, he's just gone. Yeah. There's just, yeah, that's an amazing man. Yeah, he is. And so now suddenly you've got, it's funny to me because I hear your story and I hear you looking in all the wrong places for these things. And when you finally gave up looking and just let it go to God, he said, okay, now you're ready. Here it is. Yeah. I mean, that's just the gospel in action. Portia. That's amazing. All right. So now what's funny is because I know what's coming. <laughs> yeah. um, I know, I know uh, what we're going to talk about in a minute, Yeah. but you must've thought I'm set. This is it. I've got, I got the husband. I got the kids. How many kids do you have together? We have three together. Now we had, I had two before, so we have five. Um, when Chad and I were first married, we moved to American Fork and we bought a little old house, you know, and mm, Chad had yeah. a job. I worked as a photographer and then I started my own business mm. and I woke up every day. I went to the temple every week. I woke, I mean, cause I was the girl that was so happy to have garments. I was the girl that never thought I would go to the temple. Right. So I'm like that place I'm right going there. All the time. I'm going. Yeah. You I'm can't live in there. Me. Yeah. That's my, that's my place. Right. Cause Love I it. was the girl that just didn't think I'd make it. And I of was course. there, you know, of and course. so I appreciated it. And every day I woke up grateful. Every day I thanked God. Thank you for this life. You know, I knew the difference and I knew how lucky I was. Yeah. And And then your life took a very sharp (laughs) U-turn. It did. So talk to us about kind of, and and by the way, I don't know this part of the story. Yeah. I know where you were for a few years, but I don't know what led up to it. Okay. So share with us the next steps. Yeah. So I, I got pregnant with our first son together and, um, 
my business grew so fast. I went from... And what was the business? Photography. It was called yeah. Photography by Portia, and I mm. was doing about 200 weddings a year. Wow. Yeah, so crazy. It started at 20 weddings and then 40 weddings, and, and then it just was all of a sudden nuts. Awesome. So, which is awesome, but it was chaotic. And we started building a new home in Highland with a studio in it to accommodate that. Um I was pregnant with our first, which I was pretty sick during. And right after I had him, my back went out and I had back surgery. Mm. So I relapsed on prescription drugs. And I didn't, I was too busy to do what I had done that kept me sober. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have that foundation at that point. Which this is not an uncommon story. Yeah. Relapse happens with with addiction. Yeah. It's not going to happen again to me. I'm terrified at that. (laughs) I mean, I've lost too much, you know. Right, right. So... But anyway, I mean, I shouldn't say that because I work in treatment and I know that it, it can happen, but I... Uh, That's the right mindset. Oh, yeah. I As a mindset, it's I, the right thing. Yeah, I, I suffered so much, yeah. you know, and I am so grateful for what I have. Yeah, but so you found yourself addicted again. I was addicted again. Um, I, tr- I went back to meetings and I it wasn't as... I mean, I was going back and forth. Then I found out I was pregnant again, which was a surprise with our daughter. They're like 18 months apart. Mm. So I have a crazy business. We're building this house. Wow. It's just a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. lot, yeah. It's a lot. And so when we moved into the house in Highland, the lots were going so fast. They were just mo- mm. bump, bump, bump. Like, I think ours doubled in value in six months while we were building. Wow. So I'm my neighbors are building spec homes. I'm like, I'm going to get into that. I won't have to work as much because yeah. I, at this point, I'm hiring a nanny to come to the house to watch the kids so I can work. Yeah. It's just so much, right. you know? So poor judgment. I started out just flipping lots, but I really, looking back, I'm like, oh, there's so many things I would do different, right? But yeah, it's and for, for our listeners who don't know, flipping lots, you're, you're buying a lot, sitting on it for a while, it goes up in yeah. value, you sell the lot. Totally legal. Yeah. Um, but in time, I... I started, I put more lots under contract. I was using, my judgment was poor. So I put like six or seven lots under contract. I had interest payments every month. And you put them under contract that you bought them, your own contract. I was, yeah, I put them under contract with earnest money, but I am required to make payments on them until I can get them closed. Right. right? right. So, I mean, I think my payments were like 50 grand a month. Like this is crazy. You know, to me now, that's like wow. crazy, crazy. But yeah. yeah, back then, I'm just, I'm just going nuts. Like it's just too much. And some guys in Draper, I asked them to show me a lot that they had, and they said, "Let me show you this, this house." And it was an equity deal, which means that you buy a house, you mm. borrow more against mm. it, you flip it, and in bottom line is, I mean, I thought that was crazy in the beginning, but I ended up getting involved in those, and that's. That is, it wasn't long before the FBI decided that they wanted to investigate it. And so, so walk us through the part of it that's not legal. Help okay. us understand the part yeah. of that. That what, what exactly were, you'd buy the house? So it's a complicated form of buying the house because you're buying the house to borrow against it. So okay. basically, and that's the only reason you're buying the house. Uh, I mean, co- yeah, okay, yeah. So in certain neighborhoods, there's houses that um, the square footage would yield a certain appraisal right okay but but the but house it wouldn't really, really sell for that it. yeah the guys are showing me this house and they're saying you can buy this house for 2.5 million this is high numbers but it's one of the first ones they showed me and it appraises for five and i'm like then sell it for five like if it's worth five oh well yeah. it's not really worth five yeah. it's just that the appraises at five and i'm i was confused by that in the beginning too right okay but the value to investors was 
we can borrow 500000 or a million and invest it in currency or whatever we're doing. Invest it in whatever else. Yeah, and the payments. Against the house, then you're correct. just making the payments. Yeah. So the whole thing is a little bit it's, of a... It's like a real estate Ponzi scheme. I, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to use the phrase. <laughs> it's I'm okay. glad you did. No, no, but no. Yeah, that's what it is. It's it's not... Ha- I've had time to reflect. Yeah. It's not real value. No. So, no. yeah, it's a way of just And I felt money. that. I knew that. Okay. I mean, I... Interesting. Yeah, I felt it in my soul that I okay. should stay away from that. And, and eventually, I just got involved in it anyway. Yeah. So... I and so the then, um, then all this kind of comes crashing. Yeah. So the the government, do you know how this all happened? Kind they of. Were tipped off to you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, mm-hmm. it was a variety of things. One was that I was buying and selling houses and I wasn't a realtor and there were realtors that were frustrated. So they filed complaints. Mm. And that's fine, you know, because if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and then the next thing that happened was there was a woman named... Um, well, her first name was Portia, and she was a hard money lender who was much more um, well-known, and she had some deals that were being investigated. So they thought mm. I was an alias of her. And then they started digging in oh. and went, oh, no, we have another Portia that's <laughs> got some problems. So. Wow, we have two Portias to prosecute. Right. Wow. And that's what happened, yeah. Wow. And so, so how does that process start? Do you get a letter, a knock on the door, a phone call? What happens? All, all so scary. I don't. This sounds terrifying. It's to so me. awful. It, it sounds <laughs> it, terrifying. Yeah, I, I just uh, yeah. It, you start hearing rumors at title companies, and I hired an attorney to look into it, and they said you're not that important. Don't worry about it. And eventually, a letter came, and then the FBI showed up at our house, and that was an awful day. <laughs> I yeah. I can't even imagine mm-hmm. FBI knocks at the door. Was yeah. it a couple of them? It was two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they just, hey, we're with the FBI. We've got a few questions for you. Yeah. And I and I mean, I knew, you know, that I was under investigation, but I had, you know, I talked to an attorney, don't worry about it. Mm. I didn't want to know, right? But when they show up, you can't not know anymore. Yeah, yeah you can't close the door <laughs> yeah, and go away. pretend that they weren't there. So it was, I had, had just had our youngest child, our three-month-old, and I was standing there and I basically begged them, please go. please don't do this. Mm. And they said, this is going to happen. This is how it works. And they Mm. basically asked my, told my husband that he needed to figure out which side he was going to be on because it wasn't going to be good, you know? And then that made me so mad. And and Chad's just scared to death. That's a horrible thing to say. Yeah, it was pretty I'm sorry, but that's for whatever else is happening to tell a husband in front of his wife and children, you have to pick sides. Come on. Yeah. And they said, you know, we understand you're not really involved in this, but at the same time, you know, she's, we, we can bring you in as a conspirator and she's going to be indicted. So you need to either get a lawyer or be willing to work with us. That's horrible. Yeah, it was pretty rough. So. so then what was the next step? They leave. That night must have been... You yeah, didn't sleep that I night. I don't think... I think I spent about 48 hours so nauseous. I couldn't eat anything. I just laid there in bed sick, of course, physically sick. Of course. That was pretty rough. And, and then when did you know they were fully prosecuting? Um, it was a long haul. You know, I, Which is even worse, right? It was worse, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be better if they just said, hey, this is all happening, go see a judge? It would have been better if I would have just said, yep, I made some mistakes, let's just move forward, you know? Okay. But I did. Did you have that opportunity? Yeah. Did they say if you if you come in and confess or whatever? Yeah, I did. I went in and met you with them. You can tell I learned everything I know from like <laughs> procedural trauma. 
<laughs> Come in and confess. Law and order. Law and order. I know. I have no idea. I'm so out of my element here. I have no clue what I'm saying. Yeah, but I'm fascinated. <laughs> confess. I want to understand the process. So you could, if you would have gone in and said, hey, let's cut a deal. I screwed up. It would have gone a lot better for me. Yeah. But that's okay. not how it went. It, it went, um, I hired an attorney. Well, I had an attorney. We went and met thinking that we could make some headway. And there was like the whole state of Utah, all the prosecutors sitting in the room. And my lawyer pulls me out and says, um, I thought you were little. Now it looks like this could be a big case. And I'm like, well, what do you want to do? And she's like, what you don't want to do is you don't want to admit to anything. <laughs> I'm like, what's oh, the man. point of this meeting, you know? So she goes, just listen to what they have to say. And they were they were suggesting I had done some things I hadn't. And I said, I didn't do that. And that just made it matter every time. I just say I didn't do that. But I wasn't really answering the questions, you know? Mm. So it went bad. And um, it didn't really get much better. And eventually, uh, they, you know, I had an attorney that tried to talk him out of indicting me, but it just went that they did indict me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then you're indicted. You go to court. No, Uh, we went to court, but it was still another four years before. I I mean, this this just went on and on. So I can't believe it took this long. Yeah, it was awful. These this. Uh, I was indicted on charges from 2005, and I went to prison in 2015. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's like my whole life. It's just such a long haul. <laughs> Isn't there something in, in the Constitution about a speedy yeah, trial? Yeah, you could do a speedy uh, trial. I, mean, I should have. <laughs> sake. Yeah, it was, it was long. And, I mean, I did a lot of that to myself because I was hopeful and hiring attorneys. Yeah. And, so and then I, you got sentenced. What yeah. was your sentence? So I was facing zero to seven years, and the judge gave me seven. So, yeah. no mercy. No, no. Just seven years, Portia. It, it was pretty rough. <laughs> oh my but, gosh! <clears throat> again, I think that my um, up until I walked into the courtroom, I was in a place of denial, yeah. and my life changed the day that I walked into the courtroom. It was one of the most painful and lonely experiences of my life, and one of the most spiritual experiences, because I really knew at my very lowest how loved I was, Wow! that it would be okay. And mm. we're going to give Chad another plug here, because Chad stood at the podium, and he literally begged the judge to give me eight weeks with my family before I had to be self-surrender, or before I had to self-surrender, which was one of the more sacred experiences that I've had to look to look mm. back and see my husband advocating for me was really special. That's beautiful. So, yeah. Super Chad special. just keeps getting better. <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Good on you, Chad. Yeah. So, you had a few weeks with your family. Yes. And then you had to go turn yourself in. Where Where did you serve your time? I started in California. So, I went to Dublin, California um, and spent a year there. And then they transferred me to Minnesota. And I spent three years in Minnesota. And then my last six, seven months I did in a camp. So th- that was a higher security that I started out at. So how much time total did you? Four and a half. Four and a half. Well, close to five with, yeah, but. And were these, were these women's prisons? Yes. Or were they, they were exclusively All, women's yeah, Federal prisons. prison, it's women's prisons. And, um, and it was the, one of the hardest and most beautiful experiences of my life. So let's get into that. I want to hear. Because I think we've all imagined mm-hmm. that first day. <laughs> and again, 100% of what I know comes from the Shawshank Redemption. So <laughs> I, to me, you were in a prison in the 1950s for some reason. But it's one of my favorite shows. It's so, it's so terrible that that's the only thing I get picture is, you know, people yelling fish. and But <laughs> I know it wasn't like that. 
bad. There's a little bit of that, I, but... <laughs> but... But talk about walking in that first day. Here okay. you are, you know, mother of a beautiful family, you're a Latter-day Saint, you got Chad, the wonder husband, <laughs> and you're walking into prison. Yeah. Oh, nothing more devastating. There's not words to describe the complete emptiness and shock to my system. I mean, I left so much love. I left a community, even, you know, the ward was supportive, our bishop, and just Mm. helping me get through this. And I walked in, and I looked around. There were a thousand women all wearing a khaki uniform, and they all looked really angry to me. And it was cold, like cinder block, and the officers Mm. are yelling, and I'm just like, I just I don't want to be here. I thought I can't do a day. How am I going to do seven years? I just I just couldn't get my arms around. It was just devastating. Yeah. Uh, and that first night, did you sleep? No, I don't think I slept much for like weeks. Yeah, mm. yeah. I've... So in the in the prison, mm-hmm. how much of a role that those first several days, especially, did prayer play in your life? Oh man. Yeah, I, um, so I had, they put you in a room that's called A&O, so you have other roommates, right? And I literally just laid there in prayer, right? And my roommates would say, you have to leave the room. And I would just, please go away. I just need to be, I just need to be left alone. Like, I'm just, I can't even describe the heartbreak. It was so heartbreaking. And so just, I finally got out of the room went to a table in the day room, and I clearly remember a girl named Bubbles. She was, um, I didn't know her at all. She was watching TV, and I don't think she ever quit watching TV. And I, she just would look over at me, and I'd just sit and sob. I'd be like, <laughs> I'm looking out the window, and I just couldn't, all I could see was my children's faces. I couldn't, and she would look over and she'd go, just keep breathing, baby. The pain will go away if you just keep breathing. You're going to be okay. And then she'd just watch TV, and she said that to me, over and over again. I'd be like, I can't do it. You know, and she just, just keep breathing. Just keep breathing. What a blessing. Yeah. Oh, I from bubbles. Yeah, from bubbles that I didn't know. But it was oh, like, I felt like what I knew was that she knew what I had been through. Yeah. <clears throat> That's what I knew. And I needed she had been through it herself. Yeah. She so, had been that crying. Person. Right. So she's just everybody like, goes to prison for the first time once. Yes. Everyone in there had been through what you had been yes, through. Yes, exactly. And Ugh. I never knew. I don't know why they don't have the TV show about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Go through that part. Mm-mm. All right. So talk us through what an average day in prison is like. So prison is Groundhog Day. Everything is the same. You get up at the same time. You go eat the same food every single day. So like breakfast is the same every day of the week. Lunch is the same every day of the week. And it's usually like breakfast are these bran flakes with an apple. And then you come back and, you know, about lunchtime. um, So like Tuesday taco, Friday fish, Thursday chicken. Like, I can tell you, and they're not like the good stuff, you know? It wasn't great, right? No, 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 no. Like, I, yeah, no. But the food doesn't matter, and the clothes don't matter, and the money doesn't matter. I mean, nothing Mm. matters except that your heart is breaking because Mm. you're away from your children. And that taught me so much about life, like what really matters. Because when I was in prison, I never missed a vacation. I did not miss buying my kids things. I didn't. The only thing I missed was taking them to school Mm. or, you know, cleaning my house for my family, you know, watching them sleep. Like I missed those things, just being in their presence. 
So you were in Dublin, California, which is uh, Bay Area. Correct. Chad's here with a lot of kids. Yeah. So he's not coming out for regular visits or anything. No. So was it phone calls? You get 300 minutes a month, which is four 15-minute phone calls a week. (laughs) I mean, we had it structured. (laughs) I know exactly what it is. Yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. And that's it. Yeah. That's That's all the interaction. All right, so tell us some of the people you met in prison and tell us some of the things you learned from prison. Okay. So I can I just say one thing that I know to be true is that the power, the sealing power that that bound us together because mm-hmm. of our temple marriage, I've never felt a stronger testimony or more connected to Chad than I did when I was there. We mm. felt so connected, our wow. whole family. So and I and I I was the only one that had that at the institutions that I was at, and it is so special, Mm. so valuable. And I don't know if I would have ever known that had I not gone to prison. I mean, I I would have liked to think I would have learned it, but I'm around it all the time. But you have a unique perspective. Oh yeah, for sure. I had girls from all over the compound saying, "Will you pray with me?" Will you? I mean, they just could see that strength in me. Did they know that you were a Latter Day Saint, or did they just know you were Christian? Um, I think everyone knew. I was a Latter-day Saint, but they didn't know a lot about it. Got it. You know? yeah. So I'm going to, you know, some of the women I met, I met some of the most beautiful, humble, broken, kind-hearted mm. women you'll ever yeah. meet. I mean, what I saw on TV and what really was were two totally different things, you know? We, when you're going through a hard time, you're separated from your children, you, it's, you're there for each other. There's no technology. You know, I have learned the value of living in close spaces because you are just right there for each other. Like, how are you doing, friend? You pray together at night. You're just supporting each other, you know? And, and I don't think a lot of people know. I didn't know. I, I've heard this from other people who have been to prison, that there is a lot of camaraderie oh. that, that happens. Like, you're all in this together. I came home and I was so sad. I missed the connection. <laughs> I missed all my friends. I did. I just felt so loved and supported. I mean, I had this little girl that had nothing. Every morning woke up early to go get me an apple and she'd have it waiting on my locker or write me a note. Thank you, Miss Portia, for everything you do for us. I felt so wow. loved, so loved and supported in prison. So did your experiences first, having lots of younger siblings and then raising children... Did that help you to kind of take a motherly role to some of these women? Because I'm sure some of these women had nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I I had one girl that she would just sit by me wherever I went, you know, and she said, I just feel really good when I'm around you. And I said, well, that's because I love you. And she said, I know, I can tell. You know, Mm. I, I did take that role. In fact, I was... I mean, I ended up being a leader in almost every job and every program they put me in. I would role play as the mother because there just weren't very many people that had, you know, a mother. I mean, really. That is beautiful. Did you go to, did they have Latter-day Saint services or did they just have non-denominational? They did in Dublin. Um, We were able, if you have more than two members and there were some other members, then volunteers can come in. But when I got to Minnesota, no. And that was hard. It took me six months to work with the chaplain to get a volunteer in. Yeah. So that so was my hard. my parents um, volunteered here at the prison for mm-hmm. a while, and and I had the blessing to go speak, which was one of the most sacred experiences. And one of the things that was surprising to me, but then obvious, is it's not a sacrament meeting. 
Right. You can't take the sacrament. You can't take the sacrament, right. You're still serving your time. How yeah. hard was that not to be able to partake of the sacrament, go to the temple? You know, you were left with the bare gospel, which is your relationship with Heavenly Father, oh, yeah. the scriptures, and prayer, and that's it. Yeah. So I fasted every Sunday. Okay. I, yeah. I I had to, like, I needed to fill the spirit, right? So there were things I could do. I read that sacrament prayer every Sunday. Beautiful. I, I, when the enzyme would come in, it was just like, suck it up. I would save it and read just a, you know, a page at a time. <laughs> Only this bites. much. Yeah. It was just too so special. I can have some later. Yeah. And then I would pass it around to the women or I'd read it to them. I'd say, let's go meet Sunday and let's read it together. And mm. Yeah. I just, um, I loved I, my scriptures I slept with the first three years, and then I just took them everywhere with me. You know, I had a little bag with my. I mean, it was just such a special time in my life, in so many ways. It was so painful. I spent months and months under a tree, begging God to forgive me and to protect my children, and having conversations with my children. You know, I'm just like I'm so. I mean, because I couldn't. I didn't have the phone time. Got to feel so helpless. I felt very helpless, and there were times that. The pain was so deep. It truly drove me to my knees. I, I had experiences where I felt so close to the Savior. Mm. Like I, I felt like I, I was at his feet in prayer. And those are sacred to me. But as painful as it was, it was also a very purifying experience. Wow, I bet. So The scriptures are full of references to prison. Yeah, they are. Do they have a different meaning to you now? Oh, I imagine. <laughs> I, yeah, my favorite quotes and scriptures are about prison. I love, um, I love Elder Holland. One of his quotes recently is, we are not alone in our little prisons here. When suffering, we may in fact be closer to Christ than we've ever been in our entire lives. And then he yeah. says that knowledge turns every would-be experience into a temple. And in mm. my mind, I was there. I felt the temple. I, I would pray and say, Heavenly Father, I can't go to the temple. Will you bring it here to me? Oh. You know? So, Do you have a specific experience with another prisoner that really stands oh out in your mind? Yeah, I do. So I, this really sweet girl came in. She was about 26 years old. You could see her spirit. Like she was standing at the, she's standing at the phone talking when I walked in. In fact, my roommate goes, did you see her? Did you see her? Like she was lit up. She was just a beautiful soul. And they roomed her with me. So we're in this little program together and every night she's on her knees praying, you know, and she, she and I just got really close. She was Christian and, you know, I was LDS and her story um, the suffering that she had been through, I've, I've now been back and spent time with her since she got out of prison, but she was raised very poor in, in Missouri. Her mother, they lived um, in hotel rooms often. Oh, her father committed suicide at a young oh, age, and then gosh. her mother passed. And her, her only real, her husband, her boyfriend she married, I think, very young, and they had a child. He was murdered. So she had oh, all this happens. And oh. she, her mother was an addict. and she devastating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when she shared her story with me, there was an, an ounce of self-pity. But my heart literally, like I felt this love and connection and so much mm. compassion for her. And when she got out, she, she started working at a, um, 
at an elderly care center, and she loves the elderly. She would always be pushing them around, and you know, wheelchairs. Just she just has that. She she's like they're mm-hmm. my best friends. So she started working at this place, and a family that had. Um, well, there was an LDS family that asked her if she would come live at their home. They would make a place for her. Wow. She starts posting light the world stuff. You know, this happens like a year and a half ago. I'm like, Christina, I get on Facebook. I said, what are you doing? And she goes, my best friend, Cecile. She says, I take care of her. And she told me she can't die till I joined the church. I said, you are kidding. You know, so I, I go, amazing. yeah, so beautiful. So she, she goes to the addiction recovery program. She goes, at the time she was going to the NA program. She meets another guy who says, you're so lit up. What religion do you belong to? She goes, well, I'm just getting ready to join this LDS church. You can meet with the missionaries. He joins the church. No, She's a, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so beautiful. I go back for her baptism, and I knew that we knew each other before we oh. came to this earth. I knew how special she was. I sat there with this woman who's had a stroke, and we cried. We just looked at each other and cried. And Woody was right next to me, the guy that got back. I'm like, this could have, this is so beautiful, you know? That's the most beautiful thing I think I've ever heard. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, Portia. I love her. And, and they are just so the most amazing people. I just love them so oh, much. So anyway. just amazing. Yeah. So then... You serve your time. Yeah. You didn't serve seven years. Yep. Four and a half in federal prison. Yeah. What was, what was it? Behavior? Again, I'm going back to law yeah. and order. I don't know why. <laughs> why were you let out early? I don't know why I'm taking guesses oh, or anything. I, I did a treatment program for a year and a half where I was like a leader in the program. So I worked really hard to get whatever time I could off. Did you know that that would give you time off yes. when you were doing it? Yes. Like, I didn't know if I would um, graduate cause it's a pretty, I mean, yeah. strict program, but yeah. if, you know, I was, it's funny because by the end of that program, all the women in the treatment center said, you know, it's not enough for louder to get, you know, treatment. She has to have all of us get treatment. Cause I was like <laughs> hardcore. We are here together. We are going to do this, you know? <laughs> oh, but yeah. So I, I did that. And then, um, I got good time. I didn't have any, you know, any violations or no anything. major things. Yeah. And so, then suddenly they said, did you know when it was going to be your time? So they sent me to California to finish out my time. Um, they gave me a date and then they extended it three months. So that was another opportunity for me to, my poor husband at that point, he's like, I can't keep taking these setbacks. But um, I knew, I knew when it was finally time, I, yeah. you know, that it was time. And the only thing I can compare leaving prison to would be what I imagine leaving the pre-existence like. Mm. Like, I had so much love for these women. You mm. know, when I walked out the door, they came running out of all the buildings and cheered me on. And, t- you know, we love you, Miss Portia. And I felt so much love for them, but so much love for my husband and my family. So excited yeah. and just like I was getting married. Like, I just couldn't wait to hold Chad's hand, you know. It was just amazing. It was That's so beautiful. Wonderful. And so. then suddenly you're back. And it was so scary. (laughs) So that's a question. Like, suddenly you got to get back into no one's telling you when to go to bed, when to get up. You can go wherever you want. You can eat whatever you want. I don't think anyone had to tell me because I'm like, you know, if they're going to tell me to get up at five, I'll get up at 430. So no one's going to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) So I still did everything I was doing just because. In fact, I got back and I told my son, I said, just go buy me some shirts at Walmart that are brown because I wore the same brown t-shirt. I just felt so I didn't want anything to change. Okay. You know? so, so you 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 had to 
ease back into the world. Ease. Yeah, and it you're it, not wearing a brown shirt now, so our audience knows. No, I wear black so, now. <laughs> so, and and then how was it going back to church and to the neighborhood functions and everything yeah. else? How was it with that? So I have been so loved and supported. Mm. I think part of it for me is that I knew everybody was cheering me on. And I tell every person in prison, everyone is cheering you on. And they're like, you're crazy. And I said, no, they want us to succeed, you know? And I felt that way. So when I came home, I just got up and bore my testimony and said, thank you for supporting my family. Thank you for loving me and bringing me home, you know? so awesome. So, yeah. So when you look back now at all that experience... Big, big takeaway. Big, the, the, I know there are a million lessons. Oh, yeah. What's the one big takeaway and something that, especially if it may surprise some people? So this isn't something we've talked about, but I found total freedom in prison. I found um, through taking ownership and accountability of every choice that I made to get there, it was painful And it didn't happen overnight, and I had a lot of apologizing to do. But when that happened for me, I was able to rewrite my story, and I wasn't in prison anymore. Mm. I was very free, and I felt um, very empowered. So there's so many things that I learned. You know, I learned my worth and value Mm. sitting in a prison cell with everything stripped away from me. Wow. I wasn't a mother in that cell. I didn't have a last name. I wasn't a photographer. I wasn't a member of the church. I was just Portia pleading with my Father in Heaven. And I found out how truly valuable I am and what my potential is. And that changed me. And that's available to anyone, anywhere. And when you know that, you know know your worth, and it's something worth fighting for. Mm. All of this, all these experiences just sound like they would be such an amazing book. Yeah, I'm going to segue. So tell us a little bit about your book. You know what? I was so intimidated to write a book because everybody said, you know, when I got home and I would talk in church and stuff, they'd say, you have to write a book. And I'd be like, I am not a writer. I am a high school dropout. Like, I can't write a book, but I'm a reader. You know, I love to read. And I was blogging from prison. So I started blogging. And then... um, and I've gained so much connection from people. And I had, my heart was full and I needed to share it. So the first year I just wasn't in a place. And then about a year ago, it was like, I just started writing yeah. and it just happened. And um, and I love it because it's my story. It's my family's story. And it's, awesome. yeah. So, I mean, I did it not knowing what I was doing, but I found good editors and people that would help me. And Beautiful. I still don't know what I'm doing. But it's, you know, it's a labor of love. And it's not just my story. I mean, I have, it's done in these little chapters and I share these individual stories and what I learned from like Christina, you know, Mm. she's called a beautiful soul in there. And then from this person, what I learned, because they taught me so much. So Uh, Awesome. uh, What's the name of the book? It's called Living Louder. Right now it's just on Amazon. Um, We're talking to a couple of bookstores, but you can order it if you're interested on Amazon. Get it on Amazon. Yeah. Living Louder. (laughs) Living Louder. Yeah. By Portia Louder. That's right. So neat. Portia, this interview has not disappointed at all. I I have loved getting to hear your story. We are going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Portia, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Being a member of the church is so valuable to me. Mm. Um, I feel very empowered and protected 
as a member of the church, being able to take the sacrament and also um, through my temple covenants. But I'm so grateful for the community and the love and support that's that I've been given as a member of the church. I truly know how special what we have is because of my experiences. And I, I think it comes first for me, you know, my relationship with my father in heaven and the savior. And then my membership in the church is just, I tell my husband, I love you, but you're not number one. (laughs) My relationship with my father in heaven and my savior. And I love this gospel. And so I'm very grateful to be, and I know that, you know, I'm fortunate to be a member of the church because I've made a lot of mistakes. And <laughs> it better be true when people say that, you know, they have faith crisis. I'm like, I can't afford that. I'm too much of a sinner, you know? So anyway, I'm very grateful to be a member of the church. She is an amazing daughter of God whose life has had a lot of twists and turns. And now she's making this world an even better place because of it. Portia Ladder, thank you for sharing your Latter day life with us. Thank you, Sean. And my special thanks to my new friend, Portia Lauder. I was so grateful for the time I got to spend with Portia. She just makes the world around her better. And her experiences, I think some people would have gotten bitter and angry, but Portia just lights up. And her love of the gospel is so inspiring. Portia, thank you so much for all the good you do. This week in my Latter-day life, uh, I was thinking back to an experience I had. I actually mentioned it in my conversation with Portia. This was many years ago. My parents uh, were working as missionaries, as volunteers in the prison, and they would go over to the prison for uh, evenings sometimes, for evening meetings, as well as on Sundays for church meetings. And my parents uh, asked if I would be willing to do a fireside. And I was doing a lot of firesides at that time, but for some reason, I was really uncomfortable. I didn't want to do it. And I kind of hemmed and hawed, and I said, yeah, you know, I guess I'd do it, but I was deep down kind of hoping that it just wouldn't happen. And uh, But eventually it did. They said, here's the time and date we have. And as I drove to the prison, I just didn't know what to expect. And I think in my head, I was just, I don't know, I was really worried about how would this go, and what could I say that would mean anything to uh, these people uh, that I'd be speaking to. And then I got there, and I remember walking in, you know, walking into the prison. I, I First of all, I remember how just odd it seemed to me that my parents were so comfortable there. It's like, why are my parents so comfortable in prison? But they had been serving there for a while. And then we walked in, and, and I just remember each door that you would go through had to shut before the next door opened. And these big, heavy doors and the boom and the clang and as they would close behind you and then needing to go through a metal detector and all the things I went through. And really, I felt pretty anxious walking in. And then we went into a big room and there were uh, several prisoners in there. And I was so touched by the fact that my parents, as well as the other volunteers that were there, knew these men. And we're taking time with these men to sit down with them and and talk to them. And, and some of them looked tough and others looked scared and others looked just like, you know, like you and me. And there was such a variety in there. And so they opened up the meeting and I had prayed a lot about what I could speak about. And as I began telling them some stories of faith, 
you know, there were some that were just riveted and their eyes were locked on me and it was just beautiful. And there were some that were getting up and leaving and some that were coming in and out. But as I continued, the spirit in there was just overwhelming. And I just could feel this incredible love that our Heavenly Father had for these men. And the hope that, like Portia has, that not all is lost, even though it could feel that way, I'm sure. And I finished sharing my testimony, and many of the men came up and thanked me and uh, told me how much they appreciated that I took the time. And I could just see that love and that appreciation in their faces. And we finished and we walked out. And again, one at a time, the door would have to close. I remember very specifically, a door would open, boom, the door would have to close behind us before the next door opened. But I remember walking outside and getting past that final door and walking to my car and knowing that the men inside there couldn't do that. And I just was so grateful for my freedom. And I don't think about that very often. I don't get up in the morning and think, oh, I wonder if I can walk out of my house, (laughs) because I take it for granted. And I think there's a spiritual parallel to this as well. You know, there are lots of scriptures, as Portia and I talked about, that talk about prisons. There are some that are physically talk about uh, prisons like Alma and Amulek, but there are many that talk about spiritual spiritual prison and being in prison. And we do that to ourselves when we block out the spirit and when we block out the blessings that Heavenly Father could give us through sin, we create our own prisons. And I would just I would just testify that if you have done this, if you built your own prison, God can tear that prison down. And it we just need to repent and we just need to try to do better and take the sacrament and go to the temple and do all the things that he's asked us to do. Our prison sentences aren't permanent. The atonement took care of those prisons. Why do we choose to live in prisons when the freedom, the beauty of the outside world is so incredible? The warmth of the Spirit, Jesus Christ has atoned for these sins that we have committed. And if we are in a prison, it's of our own making. I do it to myself sometimes. I create my own unhappiness when I know God's plan is a plan of happiness. I'm so grateful for the freedom that the gospel brings us and the freedom I have in this life. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. If you enjoy the show, if you could leave us a five-star review, we would really appreciate it. If you know someone who would make an amazing guest, we would love to hear about them, especially if you know them and could actually introduce us. If you could send us an email to guest at latterdaylives.com. We would really appreciate it. We're always looking for new guests. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>